News for Scotland weekending the 17th of November. Hello, I'm Hugh Stewart. This week, Scottish Parliament, how are the Ferguson Marines ferries coming along? Also, immigration, how to get new people into the country to boost the economy. Down in Westminster, Stephen Flynn's team argued for an immediate ceasefire in the Gaza dispute. Covid, we'll look back at how well prepared was the Johnson government. We've got all that and a new album coming up. Stay with us over the next 40 minutes. from Scotland. Get in touch on info at newsforscotland.org. First story, it's Scotland's wind. The first wind generator was invented by a Scots engineer, James Blythe, professor at what became Strathclyde University. In 1887, Blythe built a wind turbine to power his holiday home in Merikirk, Aberdeenshire. He stored the electricity in accumulators. So this was the first home in the world to use renewable wind electricity. Due to the the abundance of cheap fossil fuels, uh, Blythe's turbines were never developed in his lifetime, although he did build a bigger one for a local hospital. Now, however, figures released this week in the Scottish Parliament show that Scotland actually has a massive 9% of all of Europe's potential wind energy. As Scotland has only 1.2% of the EU's population, that means a potential huge export market for Scotland's wind. Figures on the Scottish Renewables website show that renewable electricity generation is now the equivalent to 97% of Scotland's energy needs, with most of this coming from wind. Wind generation has grown massively in the last decade, with more generating capacity already being planned. In 2020, there were 27,620 full-time equivalent jobs in Scotland's renewable sector, which not only contributes to employment, but also to huge savings in CO2 emissions. The UK government still lording it over us. As you probably heard, in a belated move to ta- tackle the ultra-right in the Conservative Party, Prime Minister Sunak on Monday accompanied the expected sacking of the outspoken Home Secretary Suella Braverman with the unexpected news that ex-Prime Minister David Cameron was back in government. Braverman had become increasingly out of control with her anti-immigrant talk and threat against the leaders of her metropolitan police, finally forced the the PM Sunak to fire her for publishing a controversial article in the Times without the agreement of Number 10. She warned that she would have more to say on the matter in due course and is thought to covet Sunak's job as Conservative leader. If she gets that job, she will probably lead from the opposition benches in the House of Commons because opinion polls in England currently show Labour winning by at least 140 seats. David Cameron, however, won't sit on either side of the House of Commons because he resigned as an MP after he lost the Brexit referendum and since is best known for helping the bankrupt financier Lex Greenshill, for which Cameron is reported to have been paid several millions. On Monday, Cameron was appointed UK Foreign Secretary becoming the first non-elected government minister since Peter Mandelson joined Gordon Brown's government in 2008. Brown used the same trick as Sunak. Both Mandelson and Cameron were appointed to the House of Lords. Dave Dugan, the SNP's MP for Angus, described Cameron as a bored, recycled Prime Minister who can't be held account by elected MPs. Any suggestion that Cameron, a socially liberal Conservative, would slow the Tories' drift to the right was answered on Wednesday. 
The UK government suffered a humiliating defeat at the UK Supreme Court, which found the ex-Home Secretary Braverman's Rwanda deportation policy was unlawful. The response from Prime Minister Sunak was to demand that Britain be freed from foreign courts and allowed to make its own decisions. As the court responsible was of course not foreign, the Prime Minister was presumably talking about the European Court of Human Rights, a body set up largely by, by British lawyers in the 1950s. Welcoming the departure of Braverman from the UK government, both First Minister Hamza Youssef and Labour Scottish leader Anas Sarwar said that it's time for a UK general election. Now here's some news for this week's Scottish Parliament. Debate and discussion included a ministerial statement on Ferguson Marine, which we'll hear shortly, migration into Scotland post-independence, and there was a demand for the Tories for an independent investigation into the First Minister and his deputy on the release of the COVID WhatsApp messages. But first of all, let's look at Ferguson Marine, the shipyard in Port Glasgow, which has been struggling to build two new uh, ferries for uh, Cal Mac to operate on the Arne Run. The Cabinet Secretary for Wellbeing, Economy, Fair Work and Energy is Neil Gray, and he made a statement and answered questions on the Ferguson Marine contract, which is still completing those two overdue ferries. And here is Neil Gray in the Parliament the other day. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Today's statement maintains once again this Government's commitment to update Parliament on the progress in the building of two new ferries, MV Glensanax 801 and MV Glenrosa 802 at the Ferguson Marine Shipyard in Port Glasgow. It also gives me an opportunity to reassure Parliament that we remain committed to doing all we can to ensure a sustainable future for the Yard and are working with them to find a way forward that will maintain shipbuilding and all the benefits this provides to the community in and around Inverclyde. Glensanax and Glenrosa will provide lifeline connectivity for the community on Arran, ensuring access to healthcare and education services, supporting day-to-day -day commercial activity and providing a boost to the tourism industry which contributes so much to the island's economy. The delivery of these ferries matters and I welcome the scrutiny provided by this Parliament and in particular by the Net Zero Energy and Transport and the Public Audit Committees. This scrutiny is right and proper and I want to take this opportunity to reiterate my commitment to being as open and transparent as possible as their work progresses and concludes. Okay, so that was Neil Gray in the Parliament. He also went on to say that the Glen Sanooks will be seagoing by early 2024 and uh, sea trials are coming up, and uh, she awaits certification from the UK authorities. The other ship, the Glen Rosa, is expected to join her around May 2025. Meanwhile, the future of the yard is unclear, given the government's failure to commit investment support to Ferguson Marine at this time. The Scottish government is, is reviewing the status of the, co the company before a final decision is made. Neil Gray said the business plan behind the request for investment funding does not at the moment meet a key legal test for providing subsidies. But he said that the government will leave no stone unturned to find a way forward and he hopes that all options for securing a future based on a promising order book will be delivered. And this, he says, will be done at pace and Neil Gray expects to report back in progress to Parliament as soon as possible. That's just a brief summary of some of the, some of the discussions in Parliament this week. It's easy to log on to the Scottish Parliament and learn more about the issues identify areas of interest to yourself and find out more about the committees and the debates. It's uh, easy to log on to Scottish Parliament TV. More from the Parliament later because we have a feature coming up on the Scottish Government's policy 
on immigration attracting more people in. But first, we're still in Book Week Scotland and Read, Write, Count has been launched again. Children across Scotland will be gifted a quarter of a million books and counting activities as part of the Read, Write, Count with the First Minister programme. Around 248,000 books will be given to pupils in primaries two and three this year as part of a programme underlining the First Minister's personal commitment to supporting child literacy and numeracy across the country. Pupils in Gaelic medium education will receive copies of the books in Gaelic and English in 2,000 bilingual bags. Read, Write, Count with the First Minister aims to build parents', parents confidence and encourage families to include easy and fun reading, writing and counting activities in their everyday lives. The programme received Scottish Government funding of over £900,000 for year 22, sorry, 23 to 24. The First Minister said he wants to encourage all children to enjoy reading, writing and counting. Reading for pleasure, he said, is crucial in developing children's literary skills, sorry, literacy skills and funded national programmes such as Read, Write, Count with the FM are about supporting and enhancing a love of reading from an early age. The Chief Executive Officer of the Scottish Book Trust, Mark Lambert, said that gifting books to children is one of the highlights of Book Week Scotland every year. For many children, the only books they have at home are the ones they are given by the Scottish Book Trust. If you have a story for News for Scotland, or if you want to comment on our coverage, why not tell us? Comment on our Facebook page, or leave a comment under the YouTube episode. And you can also email us on info at newsforscotland.org. Now let's look at the Labour Party civil war. Up to 50 backbenchers support the call for a Gaza ceasefire against threats from Starmer. In London the other day, MPs voted down the SNP motion calling for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. The SNP motion was backed by a number of Labour MPs exposing cracks in Starmer's party. High-profile MP Jess Phillips defied Starmer and his three-line whip to back the ceasefire. She quit as shadow domestic violence minister after casting her vote along with the SNP. Yasmin Qureshi became the first Labour frontbencher on Wednesday to resign her position to vote with the SNP when she quit as shadow minister for women and equalities. She was later joined by shadow exports minister Absal Khan and by Paula Barker. 56 Labour MPs, including a number of shadow ministers, defied Starmer to vote for the ceasefire. After the vote, SNP's Westminster leader Stephen Flynn said, It's obviously a significant rebellion within the Labour ranks, and all credit to that 56, because they've chosen to put international law and protection of civilian life first, and they deserve to be congratulated for that. My only regret, said Stephen Flynn, is that the leader of the Labour Party and the leader of the Conservative Party have, of course, chosen not to back the ceasefire. And he says he thinks history will judge them poorly for that. And he added that collectively, those of us who believe in the protection of international law and the protection of civilians will all be looking to keep the pressure up in this Parliament. No Scottish Conservative voted for the ceasefire motion, and neither did Labour's two Scottish MPs in defiance of Scotland Labour leader Anas Sarwar. First Minister Hamza Yusuf, who joined with the STUC yesterday in calling for an immediate ceasefire, said opponents of ceasefire are on the wrong side of history. Now let's look at that immigration debate I flagged up earlier. And back to Parliament on Tuesday, the Scottish Government put forward its 
plans for a progressive immigration stance if Scotland becomes independent. These plans are in number six of the Building a New Scotland series of pamphlets and were outlined to Parliament by Minister Jamie Hepburn. And after we hear from the Minister, we're going to hear our special report on that paper by Jeanette Hill. Here's Jamie Hepburn in the Parliament. Officer, migration has had a hugely positive impact on Scotland throughout our history. We've been enriched in it by the contribution of those who have chosen to make Scotland their home. Every day we see the important role people have chosen to make their home in Scotland play in supporting the delivery of our public services in all sectors of our economy, in the academic and student communities of our colleges and universities, and in our rich shared culture. We also know that migration is vital to Scotland's future as well. For the past two decades, migration has been the main driver of population growth in Scotland. In addition to international migrants choosing Scotland as their home, inward migration from the rest of the UK to Scotland has been greater than outward migration from Scotland for every year since 2001-2002. Migration matters to Scotland. That's why continuing to stress that Scotland is a welcoming, attractive country for those seeking to make a contribution here is essential. But Scotland's migration policy is decided not here in this Parliament, but at Westminster. Both the, the Tories and the Labour Party want to keep it that way. And that means we are at the mercy of right-wing UK government Home Secretaries seemingly determined to adopt ever more extreme language and policy positions. Swella Braverman be, may no more be Home Secretary, but there is no indication that James Cleverley will change direction. And for the current UK government, the hostile environment has not been hostile enough. The Scottish Government takes a very different position. Six paper now building a new Scotland series, Migration to an Independent Scotland, sets out very clearly the problems of the current UK approach to migration and why this does not work for Scotland's economy or for our communities. The risk posed by a declining working age population presents fundamental challenges to the resilience and sustainability of our communities, of our businesses and of our public services. Migrants can make a real difference in key sectors of our economy by strengthening and supplementing local skills, as well as by taking up jobs in regional economies that are otherwise hard to fill. And in line with our ambitions for a more entrepreneurial Scotland, research from the Federation of Small Businesses found that one in ten small to medium-sized enterprises in Scotland are migrant-led. Paul Sweeney. Thank the Minister for giving way. Would he recognise that initiatives such as the Scotgrad scheme have been particularly effective at not just placing postgraduate students who are from an international background in Scottish businesses, but have also been highly successful at encouraging export growth by using Indigenous foreign language skills to promote business development activity, which helps to grow the Scottish economy and create a virtual cycle? Minister. Well, indeed, I would recognise that having specific schemes predicated on specific outcomes can make a difference. And indeed, I'll come on to that in a few moments' time, because whilst it is only with independence, President Officer, that we can create a migration system that truly matches Scotland's need, this government is already taking the challenges of demographic change seriously, and why we're doing all we can within this devolution settlement to make a difference. And that was Jamie Hepburn talking in Parliament the other day about the Scottish Government's new plans to bring more people into the country. These depend, of course, on independence first, because, as he pointed out, immigration policy is reserved to London. Uh, during that clip, you heard from Paul Sweeney, also Labour MSP, who pointed out that it actually helps the economy if not only do we attract graduates from overseas, but also invite them to stay and contribute to the economy. 
bought a couple of years after us. They can stay if they like, of course. That'll be in another paper on how you become a Scottish citizen. We'll discuss that maybe in future weeks. Now, what actually is the detail of the Scottish Government's proposals? It's paper number six in the Building the New Scotland series. Jeanette Hill from the NFS team has been reading the whole paper. This is Jeanette's report. called Hush Hush or Time to be Sleeping by one of Scotland's great songwriters, Jim McLean. And why I started with that is because this is going to be all about immigration. Last week, the Scottish Government talked about positive measures to bring more young people into the Highlands and Islands. This is part of the forward planning needed in preparation for an independent Scotland. Immigration and population decline were discussed in paper number six of the Building a New Scotland series. In this, the Scottish Government takes quite a different approach to recently highly publicised Tory policies on immigration. It outlines new visa routes for people to live, work or study or invest in an independent Scotland stating that this will be a humane and principled migration policy, welcoming new Scots who want to contribute to the economy and communities. This includes the idea of a welcoming approach to those seeking asylum, who will be treated with dignity and respect. It argues that recent migration from the EU has enriched our economy and some industries, such as hotel and catering, are struggling to find workers since Brexit. The report assumes a rejoining of the EU and freedom of movement within this area. The report highlights the population of Scotland is set to decline and is, like many others, ageing. It also argues unfairness in previous policies towards the global south and scandals such as Windrush have to be considered in a fair immigration policy. An interesting aspect of this is the new Scottish Connections visa. And that would provide an immediate route for those with a connection to Scotland, such as five years residence, or perhaps your parents were Scottish, or graduates from Scottish University. I mean, such is the case in Ireland right now, if your parents are grandparents, Uh, Were Irish, you can indeed try to claim Irish citizenship. The Work in Scotland visa, that would retain the employer-sponsored route. And there are also ideas for seasonal worker visas and also family visas. There are also plans to reduce the cost of these and the complexities of visa applications. Unions might argue that unfair employment practices such as practised by unscrupulous agencies in the past also need to be addressed so workers from overseas or home are not exploited as many have been as they are vulnerable when first entering the country. 
Community activists would also say, let's address the infrastructure issues, such as transport or affordable housing, to incentivize young people to stay in the Highlands and Islands. I remember Alex Salmon answering a question on immigration on the BBC Question Time some years back, and he said we had a very different attitude to it. We have vast areas of Scotland which are underpopulated. Perhaps because of the Highland and Islands and, and the loans, indeed clearances, when hundreds of thousands of people were forcibly evicted from their lands by landowners and their agents, often in a violent and brutal manner, families were often left destitute because of this. Extensive sheep farming brought soil erosion and decline of traditional industries such as fishing and farming and also had cultural impacts such as the decline of Gaelic and other Highland traditions. In that interview, Mr Salmon also mentioned the Scottish diaspora, that's Scottish people who emigrated and their descendants, concentrated in mainly in countries like the United States, Canada, Australia, England, New Zealand. This is estimated by the Scottish government to be a, between 28 and 40 million people worldwide. Other estimates have ranged as high as 80 million. According to Marjorie Harper, that was in 2003 at the University of Aberdeen, Scottish emigrants and their descendants have maintained connections to Scotland through formal and informal means, including the church, school, Scottish societies, place names, correspondence, family and community networks. Rogers Brewbooker, 2005, wrote that immigrants regard Scotland as a source of identity. And according to Lauren Brancas, in 2016, of the Centre for Breton and Celtic Research, Scottish culture has not been contained within the borders of Scotland. It has lived on in the minds of migrants. So given both these, it's understandable why a country as large as Scotland has a small population of 5.45 million in comparison to England with almost 56.73 million. There are push and pull factors in immigration and emigration. Some of the violent push factors discussed above and another major one is poverty. Also access to resources such as land or jobs or houses and of course rights such as religious or personal freedoms. So we may be pushed out from our homelands because of a lack of these and pulled to lands where we feel more opportunities await. When talking of figures of emigration and immigration, what is missing is the hardship and pain of leaving behind family, homeland, culture and the exploitation and often prejudice awaiting for you in the new land. There are some great songs telling the real pain of loss. Songs such as Ralph McTell's Long Way From Here to Clare, talking about Irish in London, or our great songwriter Jim McLean's Smile in Your Sleep on the Clearances, or A, Wish, A Kiss from Wish Cross by Peter Nardini. Beautiful songs which relay the pain and loss of immigration. The Highlands still struggles with depopulation and specific issues of housing, jobs, transport 
and rural poverty. It also deals with tourism and an influx of those coming to retire there or purchase second homes, pros and cons of which I'll deal with in another report. Still feel like field, but you must feel brand new. I blew a kiss from Wishel Cross. I hope my is true. And we're also going to hear from Jeanette in a few minutes following our next story. But Jeanette has an album review. She's been talking to Joe Quinn, a well-known West of Scotland performer, musician, band leader, and that interview. And a clip from his album is coming up um, in about 12 or 13 minutes. But our penultimate story this week is about COVID again, as the COVID inquiries continue in London and Edinburgh. What do you recall about the weeks and months before the international pandemic reached Britain's shores? As we saw overcrowded hospitals in Italy, did you feel that our health authorities under Boris Johnson had a plan? Joe Murray investigates. Hello, I'm Joe Murray and I'm going to speak to you about the COVID-19 pandemic. Now that the inquiry's in full swing, an article appeared today in The Lancet and this has prompted me to go through what the journalist is talking about because I remember much of it myself. In the last week of November 2019, me and my partner Chan came down with what we thought was a horrible flu. I was in the middle of a general election campaign working for my local MP, Chris Stevens. I was completely and utterly flattened by a virus infection. As someone who is very susceptible to catching flu, I quickly realised this was very different. I never call a doctor when I have the flu as there's nothing much they can do and staying in bed and recovering is usually the best thing to do. However, this was no flu I had ever experienced before. There were two moments during a night when I thought I was actually going to die. I was so ill that I found it hard to care. The following morning, I began to slowly get well again. COVID-19 was still unknown then, but I have no doubt that is what we had contracted. It was after the new year, when we were both well again, that we first heard of COVID-19. In retrospect, Jan works on the desk in the Caledonian University Library and there are lots of Chinese students who had just returned to their studies from their homes in China. Considering how fit and healthy we were at the time and how ill we both had been, it was no surprise to me that this bug turned out to be as deadly as it was. As I talked to you about this on Saturday the 11th of November, almost four years on, and the COVID-19 inquiries are in full swing in the UK, The Lancet has printed an article on the government response to this dreadful pandemic. I will lean heavily on, on Richard Horton's article for this podcast, and I will also cite and quote Professor John Robertson's article for Talking of Scotland. Before proceeding with this script, I wrote out the main antagonists in this story, and just reading the timeline is horrific in itself. On January 30th, 2020, the globally respected World Health Organisation declared a public health emergency of international concern. The UK government was confident it could ride out the storm coming from China. Martin Reynolds, who was at the time Prime Minister Boris Johnson's principal private secretary, believed the system was gripping the challenge. Lee Kane, who was Downey Street's Director of Communications, thought the outbreak was simply a matter for the Department of Health and Social Care. On February 4th, 2020, Chris Whitty, the Chief Medical Officer, briefed Johnson about the risk of a pandemic. According to Imran Shafi, Private Secretary to the Prime Minister for Public Services, Johnson was worried about overreaction. 
but government committees were waking up to the threat. COBRA, the Cabinet Office Briefing Room A, a group responsible for managing national crises, concluded that the UK's public health system lacked capacity for dealing with the pandemic. But their concerns over the extent of the danger did not penetrate the centre of government. The CMO reassured Downing Street that there was no sustained transmission outside Wuhan. Then, according to Horton, something very strange took place. Johnson took a two-week holiday from February 14th to February 24th, and he appears to have issued a do-not-disturb notice to his lackeys. Therefore, he received little or no further information about the growing risk of COVID-19. Yet, at the time he went in his halls, it was known that there was a sustained coronavirus transmission in the UK. Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, Matt Hancock, reassured colleagues that a plan was in place. By the time Johnson returned from his vacation, clusters of infection were being reported in Italy's Lombardy region. According to Helen McNamara, the Deputy Cabinet Secretary, Number 10's macho culture saw politicians and their advisers laughing at the Italians. They remained supremely confident that the UK would be world-beating in conquering COVID-19. Shafi tells that a meeting of the Civil Contingencies Secretariat on February the 28th concluded that a global pandemic was now likely, yet Johnson and his closest advisers failed to engage. Much earlier, the Scottish Government, advised by experts such as the American academic Professor Debbie Sridhar, had wanted to follow the WHO advice However, the Scottish Government could not do this until the Coronavirus Scotland Act 2020 was given royal assent on the 6th of April 2020, more than two months after the WHO alert. Sridhar praised the resulting Scottish Government strategy to deal with the pandemic, a strategy whose goals were, one, to reduce exposure, and two, to keep daily new cases as low as possible. Sridhar also repeatedly contrasted the Scottish Government's response to the pandemic in Scotland to the strategy used by British Government in managing the COVID-19 pandemic in England. Mark Lander in the New York Times in July 2020 wrote, Debbie Sridhar, who runs the Global Health Governance Programme at the University of Edinburgh, noted that the two countries took radically different approaches from the start. England's priority was to prevent its hospitals from being overrun, while Scotland's was to drive cases down to zero. If not for imported cases from the south, Scotland could come close to that goal by the end of the summer. As it was during the summer of 2020, Scotland recorded the third highest death toll in Europe. If Schrader is correct, it prompts an important question. Was Scotland's death toll affected by cases being sent from England to ease the burden on their NHS hospitals? I certainly hope the COVID-19 inquiry asks that. It must also be remembered that in the years before the pandemic hit, the UK government allowed the emergency response capabilities to be reduced by not replacing personal protection equipment for frontline health workers. In April 2020, The Guardian reported that between 2013 and March 2019, UK government stockpiles containing protective equipment for healthcare workers in the event of a pandemic fell in value by almost 40%. Analysis of official financial data suggests £325 million was wiped off the value of the Department of Health and Social Care emergency stockpile, reducing it from £831 million in 2013 under the Conservative-led coalition government to 506 million by March 2019. 
The finding is likely to raise further questions for the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, who faced criticism after urging healthcare workers not to overuse PPE. The revelation raises questions about why the value depreciated so quickly and how the fall related to stock levels. So back then we had Matt Hancock demanding health workers not to overuse PPE when they had no option but to do so. PPE ran out very quickly when the pandemic began and health workers were reduced to wearing bin bags as aprons, which did not protect them from contracting the disease, which many did. Some died from it. It appears that due to Tory cost-cutting, the UK was woefully inadequately prepared for any onset of a pandemic. It appears that they simply did not believe such a thing would happen. They appear to have thought that such an emergency stockpile was a waste of money. How wrong were they? And even when it did hit, they thought they were smarter than the scientists who were telling them what needed to be done. And their hubris had them short of a plan to deal with it. Johnson finally chairs his first COBRA meeting on March the 2nd, a whole month after WHO declared an emergency. A COVID-19 action plan appeared the next day, but according to Kane, it was nothing more than a thin overview. By the time Italy locked down on March the 9th, Reynolds readily agreed that the UK was playing catch-up. But there was still no plan, no strategic direction and no leadership. Instead, a debate raged about mitigation versus suppression. The evening of March the 13th was the moment Downey Street realised that the NHS would be overwhelmed if it continued to pursue the policy of mitigation or herd immunity. Only now did the principals have NHS data showing that hospitalisations were were rising faster than models predicted. Dominic Cummins, Johnson's main advisor, famously drew the threat on a whiteboard. This, as it turned out, is how politicians became persuaded that lockdown was the only option. The Lancet points out that treating coronavirus like influenza had been a monumental mistake. Cummins agreed. Something had gone horrifyingly wrong. McNamara is quoted as saying, we were heading for a total disaster. Yet Johnson remained sceptical, as told by Shafty at a meeting on March 19th between Johnson and his Chancellor Rishi Sunak. Johnson said, we're killing the patient to tackle the tumour. Why are we destroying the economy for people who will die soon anyway? On March 23rd, seven weeks after the emergency is declared, Johnson and his UK government finally locked the nation down. Giving evidence, officials appeared astonished at the spread of the pandemic. Johnson's principal private secretary, Martin Reynolds, admitted that we weren't ready for the crisis. Cummings said it was a historic catastrophe based on disastrous groupthink. At the time, Sam Coates, political editor of Sky News, said, Boris Johnson doesn't want to curtail the liberties of British citizens. It's Nicola Sturgeon, for instance, who's pushing, pushing to take further, more draconian steps. He's resisting, and so Britain inches forward with its response rather than taking uh, great leaps. You can see the tension in Boris Johnson in some of the interviews he gives. I spoke to him on March the 5th, and there he was insistent that it was not the right time for Britain to change the way that it does things. It's business as usual, he said to me. Listening to that, it's clear that the Scottish First Minister was alert to the threat being loudly forecast by the World Health Organisation in the first few weeks of 2020 and that the UK Tories, no doubt backed by the Scottish Tories, were reluctant to listen. In fact, many members of the Unionist Party spent their time criticising the Scottish Government's approach to communicating to the public what was deemed essential information. With all we knew back then, and as Professor John Robertson of Talking Up Scotland says, what more could the Scottish Government have done at the time? Retrospect is a great thing. This is Joe Murray. News for Scotland, signing off. Thanks for listening. And that-
Thank you, Joe. So the COVID inquiries, as I said, do continue with some time before the report. Now, as I said, we're going to finish with music in this week's podcast. Thanks for listening to us so far, and I'm going to introduce you to Joe Quinn, or rather Jeanette is. Joe is a well-known singer and band leader working all over the west of Scotland from his base at Balloch by Loch Lomond. Joe both works on his own as a singer-guitarist and also fronts an excellent folk rock band, The Occasionals. Joe has a new album out, and this week he told Jeanette all about it. So if you stay, stay with us for another 12 minutes, you'll know about it too. So I'm Jeanette Hill and I'm talking today to Joe Quinn, who's a well-known West of Scotland and international musician. You going to tell us a little bit about yourself there, Joe? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me Great on, Jeanette, by you, the way. Joe. Thank yeah. you very much. Um, yeah, I've been a full-time musician for 20 years now, but uh, I started playing around the folk club uh, in Glasgow when I was about 15, 16. Um, uh, one of the ones that comes to mind is where I met Alan Tall, who went on to be with uh, 1984 and Wildcat and all that yeah. sort of stuff. And there used to be a blues club uh, in Gibson Street. It was a cafe. I remember that. Well, it was not. <laughs> It was it, it yes. was in a basement, and there were some great yeah. guitar players there. Absolutely, um, and that's where I met Frank Coyer. Frank Coyer used to play with John yeah. Martin, and a few years after that, uh, John went to London because he, he had a, an offer of staying on his mum's houseboat. <laughs> and Frank was at university studying architecture, and he decided to stay. Um, I ended up playing with Frank. We played as a duo, as Coyat and Quinn, for about I three years. So that was that was good. Uh, I learned a lot from Frank, so I did, because he, he was a bit older than me. <laughs> and you played all over, haven't you, Joe? You know, Australia, America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I played festival. My son lives in Phoenix, Arizona, right. and is heavily involved in the, the music business, and so right. is his wife. They run their own independent festival. Just finished on Sunday yeah. night there. That's at the weekend. There's 145 wow, bands on over the weekend, huge. and it's um, little. Uh, it's a little mining town in yeah. Arizona, and it just fills up and blossoms wow. for the weekend. During the year, it's it's like an artist retreat. It's full of all these wacky <laughs> artists and stuff. So got got that, got that one under my belt. Uh, I've done I've done quite a few festivals. I've done Mull. I've done Gibson Street Festival, West End yeah. Festival. I used to I used to won the Loch Lomond yes. Folk Festival which ran for, well, I, I tried to rejuvenate it about 19, sorry, 2017, yeah. but it was just, it was just too difficult, too cumbersome. And a lot the, of work, the, um, yeah, yeah. A lot of work. It's great when you're putting up 1,200 wow. fence panels on the Thursday night. <laughs> a lot of work and no money. You get the mark. <laughs> yep, that's a good 50, 60 grand. Oh. So you get all that done, and then on Monday when it's all got to come down, there's three oh, of you wow. left there to do it, you know. But talking about a lot yeah. of work, you obviously are a, a working musician, that's how you make your living, um, and sort of COVID really hit Indian and theatre, making a living at theatre or um, or music, it really hit, hit hard. But you had a great idea to keep us going during COVID, didn't you, Joe? Yeah, uh, I used to run the, the Doghouse Open Mic in the Doghouse Pub in Balloch. Yeah. I did that for 15 years. And then everything shut yeah. down. And I thought, I'm going to go insane. To keep my sanity, I started uh, the lockdown sessions, the Doghouse yeah. Lockdown yeah. Open Mic sessions. 
And the, the, the amazing talent came on then. It was absolutely fantastic. It's still going yeah. after four years. And it's been amazing. We're, we're hitting that, towards three and a half thousand. Yeah, yeah. And it's international, isn't it? People um, perform on that from all over, which is one of the great things about that we've discovered that we can do. You know, putting people on there yes. various means. Yeah, yeah. Some talented it's people. Fantastic. We had, on Sunday with Bridget Vernway, she's from South Africa. Yep. I have I've guest artists from America, Holland, Germany, Norway, Finland, Spain, Italy, Northern Ireland, Southern Ireland, wow. England, Wales. Um, Amazing. Yes, yeah, it's, yeah. it's fantastic. Not many people from Australia, they're usually asleep yeah, when yeah. they're performing. 12-hour delay, but it's great. There's some talent some, there. Really some, I can't believe how, how good, you know, uh, many of you. And, not only that, I mean, you also support the young, up-and-coming songwriters. Maybe that's why Glasgow's so great at the music scene and, and songwriting is because there's people like yourself that are supporting the young ones to explore their talents, yeah? Absolutely. Uh, I, I, what happens in Balak, or what happened is during the time that I started the open mic, a lot of the younger kids yeah. were coming, say like sort of the 19, 20, mm. 25. They're, they're, all, they're all doing their own thing now. They've got their own yeah, open mics. Like they've got their own bands. Some of them are full-time musicians Fantastic. now. Yeah, I'm, I'm unfortunately in Balak, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm guilty of a lot of things <laughs> concerning music. <laughs> well, that's good. It's, it's, you know, it's a good thing to be guilty of. It's a skill for music, which is great. And for, if as, you like, a skill for ordinary folk, if you like, to access music, not the Royal Conservatoire. Not there's anything wrong with the Royal Conservatoire, but it's just that um, for ordinary folk, ordinary folk to give it a try and it comes part of their life. Yeah. It does. Yeah, even if they... in, in the area, we, we have a folk club on a Monday night at St. Ballard Main yeah. Street. Uh, we have a, a pub session on a Friday afternoon for us pensioners on the unemployed. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, in Alexandria as well, we have uh, a Thursday night session. We have a Sunday night session. Wow. And once a month... At, in Alexandria, we have another session. So there's plenty of music down this way, but there's yeah. loads of music in, Gla in Glasgow, oh. all, all, over, all yeah. over. You know, and you get so many great pubs. I do. I mean, I've, I've been playing in like Molly Malone's in Glasgow for about yeah. 10 years now, uh, once a month. Uh, I play in the Clutha, I've played in the Scotia, yeah. I've played in the Isle Inn, I've play, played in many Glasgow pubs. The audiences are great. Yes, they are. They really appreciate as long As long as you're good. Music. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's great. The Cliff is a, a great example. Yes. Um, uh, of keeping music live, you know. Absolutely, yes. It's a great way they, they do it. And you're a songwriter yourself, aren't you, Joe? You're not just you're a musician, but you're also a songwriter. Yeah. Yes. Yes, <laughs> I do. I do dabble. Um, I, I'm on my second album. Fabulous. Which, uh, the What's first this one, one? Go on. The, the first one. This one's called. It's called Painting Pictures, Telling Stories. Excellent. Because um, I, I feel that I feel that my songs are, are like little stories, and you can just yeah. see them in your head. You know, that's yeah. that's kind of what. I, Is that where did not, you get the idea? It's ideas? not a remit to myself. Well, I, I get. I get. Maybe I got a tune first, um, or, or I have right. a theme like. Yeah. Uh, there's one on there called Little Farum on the album, and yeah. that's a story really about where, where my mother was born in Northern Ireland. You know, we she was born on a farm yeah. in a, in County Down. Yeah, uh, and it's kind of a a, a shot here. I, I used to go there for my holidays. Yeah, and then four verses later, we're carrying the coffin down the road. Oh, you know, it's, yeah. it's just I just say little pictures. Oh. I'm just sitting here dreaming. I'm just, I just imagine. Yeah. I tell people to imagine they're standing on the top of a mountain. 
and there's a little stream and it, it just a little trickle of water and then it, as it goes down the mountain it gets bigger and wider and bigger and wider uh, and it's just kind of picturing where does that little stream go yeah and, and my stream goes ends up in the Clyde yeah. <laughs> It's wonderful, wonderful. This is, I mean, this is folk song for me. They always tell a story, you know. Most good songs for me, they, they tell a story. That's why I, you know, that's why I love all sorts of songs. I really listen to the lyrics. I know a lot of people don't, but I really do because I want to hear the story that the writer is, is trying to say. It sounds great. Mm. There's another one on there that you said you were really fond of that we might play a bit of, which was, is it called Tom? Yeah. Yes, it's called Tom. It's, it's about a friend of mine. He's Canadian, born in Canada. He's lived here for 35 yeah. years. But when he was a kid, uh, he had a pet bear. A pet bear? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and in the story, he also um, has, a, has a band. Yeah. You know, and uh, it's like 50% of that's true and 50% is just my imagination. <laughs> But it's got like a, it's got a great international chorus. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter where in the world you come from. Uh, and the chorus goes, hey, 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 hey. So anybody can sing it. So I'm looking forward to the day when the whole world sits one day and sings, Hey, 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 hey! Great, it sounds, sounds like something even I could sing. Well, I mean, even if you, even you, even the people who can't sing can sing it as well. That's the um, benefit of it. Excellent. And where can people um, buy your album? Then, Joe, tell us about that. Well, at at the moment, um, I, I'm terrible for uh, getting things done, <laughs> uh, so I'm a wee bit behind. My my, my son-in-law, sorry, not my son-in-law, my my son. Who is a an IT marketing guy? I've got one of them. Yeah, who's working on my web <laughs> on my web pages in conjunction with my niece, who is my graphic designer. Yeah, always um, good. But the two of them haven't actually the two of them haven't got it together yet to get my Bandcamp and my web page up and running. Right. Although my, you can go into my web page, right? But it doesn't tell you where to get the album or anything yet. Uh, so the only way to get the album at the moment is to go into my Facebook page. Yeah, which is Joe Quinn Music Ballach. Yeah, that's it. Joe Quinn Music Ballach. Okay. Um, PM me, and then yeah. I shall organise once I've got your address to get the CD posted out to you, signed of course, and it's ten pounds yeah. including post and packaging. Excellent, excellent. No, is that UK wide? Yeah, obviously for uh, international. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Europe is it's about sixteen euros, uh, yeah. and America is about yeah. twenty dollars. Because you've got to pay that. Yeah. So, Okay. Yeah, you got to Great pay Joe, so they duties and you. stuff, you know. Good. We will put that up in our. Uh, Hopefully, in our... my 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 web page is just Joe Quinn Music. www Music. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And we can find you on Facebook and even looking... through the the Doghouse Lockdown Music page. Yeah. You'll get me on there. Yeah. You'll get me on Joe Quinn Music Ballad. Yeah. You'll get me on my band page. Yeah. The 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 occasional. Oh yes. I'm like, I'm, like a, I'm like a virus. I'm <laughs> a good virus, though, this time. <laughs> yes. A beautiful, yes, a good a one. A musical. <laughs> Interesting virus. <laughs> Absolutely. It's great to talk to you, Joe. So, I, I, uh, go on. And you too, Jeanette. I'm just saying, and, and you, and thank you for inviting oh, me on. Yeah. Uh, it's a pleasure being talking to you. And thank you very much for... For promoting my I'm music, looking forward to listening which I to much it. appreciate. Oh, <laughs> I'm going to be listening to it today. Since I've got it now. You've got it I now. Have. Yep. <laughs> even even that, I've I've got loads of digital copies to send out to radio stations and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Haven't got round to them all yet. <laughs> Get them out. Send one to Gavin. Gavin's got one. Oh, excellent! He'll be putting it on, no doubt. 
Yeah, Celtic Music Radio. I've got yeah. it. Ross Ross has put it on their on their server. Excellent. I think. I know. I can. I know nearly everybody at Celtic Music Radio. <laughs> They're a good group group of people. I must admit, They're great for spreading their, their uh, music about. They are. <laughs> I, I met them all when uh, when I was doing the folk festival because they used to come down and broadcast uh, live from the festival. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Well, lovely to speak to you, Joe, and I'll Excuse leave me. you in peace for the rest of your day. And thanks again for giving us your time. Lovely to talk to you. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Bye now. Pleasure. Thank you.
listening this week. Thank you for listening News for Scotland's News, where we are. Get in touch. Give us a comment under the YouTube or on Facebook. This is Hugh Stewart, and thanks for listening. See you later.